Winter is in full-fledged, and that comes with that uh, winter driving here in Canada. And I think that part of the uh, license procedure for students, sorry students, um, should be a drifting class. Because we live in Canada, there's snow, there's ice, I think, I think everybody should know how to drift. Um, I don't know if that would make the road safer or worse, but uh, drifting is fun. I, I don't mean on public roads, by the way. I mean, it just... Uh, uh, I got my, many of you know I got my racing license years ago, and uh, at the Shannonville Speedway, there's this one turn, turn number 15 for the racing nerds, and it's a great drifting corner, and I'd always drift around that corner. The problem is, with drifting, is you, end up, you can also end up in ditches, which I've also done, gone off track and filled the car full of dirt and <clears throat> that kind of thing, and uh, yeah, so drifting leads to ditches, and theological drifting also leads to ditches. And when you study the New Testament, you find that historically speaking, the church has always drifted into ditches. The ditch of legalism, the ditch of lawlessness. Those would be kind of the two ditches. But it's also kind of a, a human thing to drift into these ditches. Here we are on the precipice of a new year. 2017 is ahead of us. And there's a great opportunity to, a friend of mine uh, asked me, you know, have you reflected on the last year? And it was a great challenge because I seem to live so far in the future all the time to, to stop and pause and reflect would probably be very helpful in a lot of ways. But as we are on the precipice of a new year, you look towards the 2017 and you ask yourself, you know, what helpful patterns could there be for me to establish that would probably serve me and my family, my neighbors? And what unhelpful patterns do I have that would probably serve me and my family, my neighbors if I started doing things and stopped doing things? But because we drift into ditches, we can look at New Year's resolutions and land in this legalism ditch where we put all of our hope and all of our trust and we drive ourselves crazy and everybody else around us crazy with our resolutions and we cripple ourselves with the legalism of spiritual discipline, not because we think good patterns would be helpful, but because we are defining ourselves and finding our identity in our self-polished righteousness. And so if you've ever been in, a, in, in, in that ditch and you got tired and exhausted of the self-righteous ditch, then you'll do the human thing, I've done it, and you swing into the other ditch. The law, you'll overcorrect because you've drifted into that ditch, so you drift into the other ditch, the lawless ditch, where you say, forget resolutions, forget helpful patterns, forget spiritual discipline, that's all legalism. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to look at any of the patterns that are in my life that might be helpful to begin, that would be more loving for my neighbor and my family. And I'm not going to stop doing anything. That's all legalism. And I'm under grace. I'm not under the law. So I'm not going to look at anything. I'm not going to consider anything. And I'm going to call that freedom. And we, fall in, we swing into that ditch. Ironically, both ditches are exhausting because we are at the center of both of those scenarios. Both of those ditches end up being burdensome. Because the legalist ditch and the lawless ditch put us at the center of our faith and not Christ. And so this morning we're going to read from Romans 6 in just a minute. I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. We're going to do a four-week series as we head into this new year on the freedom of the gospel. On the freedom that there is in Christ. The freedom of what he has done. And we're going to look at what the scriptures say this freedom actually is. And I trust and I hope and I pray that this serves you as you head into this new year, to not drift theologically into either of those ditches, to be burdened by legalism or further burdened by lawlessness, you know, masquerading as grace, but to actually live in this true gospel 
uh, freedom. And, my, and I'm not speaking from a position of having cracked the code and walking this out perfectly. I'm with you in this. There are dark, unevangelized places of my heart that are not free, and I want the freedom and need the freedom of God's grace to liberate me, and I pray the same for you. So this is a freedom series, but uh, before I came to the short title of just calling the series Freedom, I read Romans 6, and then I came up with a long series title. I'm going I'm to read it for you, because this will give you a sense of where we're going these next four weeks. But I realized this was too long for a title, and I, I ended up with this. Living life in freedom, fueled by the rest of the gospel and the knowledge of God's love toward us and the power of his grace in us, without giving into the temptation of falling into the ditches of legalism and lawlessness, like drunken Christian pheasants. Then I realized peasants. Sorry, pheasants. That was... <laughs> For a second, I thought, I'm just going to move on. Maybe nobody will notice. (laughs) But uh, I knew you would. Yeah, Luther said it great. We just, like these drunken Christian peasants falling from one ditch to the next. Oh, God, would you free us from from our crazy theological drifting so we can rest in the goodness of this gospel. So I'm going to read Romans chapter 6. And a quick context for that is this, because we're showing up mid-conversation, which is a bad way um, to read the Bible unless you get the context. But in chapters 1 through 4, Paul explains that God's law diagnoses us as needing grace. Romans chapter 5, God's gospel delivers us by providing the grace that we need. Romans 5 is all about the second Adam. So God is not so much a God of second chances as he was a God of one chance and a second Adam. Because if God just kept giving our sinful state chances, we would just continually make sinful choices. So he provided the perfection that he required. That's Romans 5, the second Adam. And now, so we see the need for grace. God's law diagnoses us as needing grace. God's law provides the grace that we need in Christ. And now we come to Romans 6, the implications of that grace. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one has died who has died has been set free. I'm sorry. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, making you to obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." 
What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented yourself, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time of the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Here's the sermon in a sentence today as we expound Romans 6 over the next four weeks. The cross of Christ means that we are justified and no longer slaves to sin. Being united to Christ means sin cannot demand we return to ourselves. Romans 6 invites us into us. What the gospel is, is chains falling, prison doors swinging wide open. That's what the gospel is. It's a status of freedom. What the gospel does is it reorients our hearts so we don't want to go back into ourselves. See, what the gospel is is a status of freedom. What the gospel does is it gives us an increasing experience of freedom. It melts our hearts so that we live in this great freedom, that we enjoy the freedom of this great grace that we celebrate. So this morning we're going to look at a uh, few things, three things specifically from this text. Kids, take a look down at your notes. And the three things we're going to look at is we're going to ask some questions of Romans 6. Firstly, what has God's grace freed us from? Secondly, what has God's grace freed us for? And then thirdly, how is God's grace continually freeing us? So let's look at this first question of what has God's grace freed us from? Kids, if you look down at your notes, you're going to see that the answer is that he's freed us from sin. He's freed us from being enslaved. He's freed us from spiritual masters. Spiritual masters. When you look at the text that I just read, Paul uses the language of slavery nine times. Nine times. You'd think he's almost trying to make a point. I mean, it's unbelievable. Verse 6, 12, 14, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 22. Look at it in your lap. Nine references to slavery. What is Paul doing? I mean, we don't even need Greek to understand that he's, he's, he's making a serious point here. Our freedom, living free lives, it flows from the first commandment. The first commandment is to, to worship God and him only. And from there flows true freedom. The moment that we're not worshiping God and him only, Paul uses the language of slavery over and over and over and over and over. It's interesting. 
We are all spiritual servants. Notice the options. If you read Romans 6 again, he gives, you, he gives us two choices. Slaves to God, slaves to sin. Perhaps you're here, you're not of a Christian worldview. You're saying, well, I'm not, well, that's all nice if you're a religious person. See, but I'm not a religious person, so I'm actually free from all this stuff. I'm free from dogma. I'm free from doctrine. I'm free from all this God talk. I'm, I'm actually a free person. I'm living my own life. Here's what I would invite you to consider, if that's you this morning, is that you're not free because you wake up in the morning and something gets you out of bed. You're living for something. Even if you are a staunch atheist, you're still living for something. If you read Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, it's clear that though he has no, professes no faith in God presently today, Mr. Dawkins is passionately living for something. Everybody is enslaved to something. But what Paul provokes here is that the worship to God leads to freedom and to worship anything else, our education, our reputation, our career, to live to the glory of anything else is slavery. How can that be possible? If you look at verse 16, you'll notice that the language says you present yourself. Other translations in your lap, perhaps they say you, in verse 16, you offer yourself. In the Greek, it's this, the aspect of giving yourself over to. It's like you're, you are sacrificing yourself for something. So some people are waking up sacrificing themselves, living, living for a paycheck so they can get a bigger house, a nicer car, nicer things. Some people, it's their family, their marriage. Some people, it's the desire for marriage, the desire for family, being driven, desiring something, reputation. More people, you know, you know, giving you affirmation in, over your social media accounts, whether it's uh, achievement, whether it's in, even your own independence. You say, well, I disagree with all of this. I disagree with what you're saying. I'm a free person. I'm independent. You're a slave, ironically, to that idea of independence. And everybody is waking up in the morning, getting out of bed for something. And a lot of those things that we get out of bed for are actually quite good things. The Bible is not inviting us into Gnosticism where the physical world doesn't matter, or relationships don't matter, or we should sell all our things and live in cardboard boxes. Don't, like, that's not Christian faith. I'm not advocating for any of that. We're not monks. We're not aesthetics. But Paul is provoking us to see everybody is presenting themselves. Everybody is being motivated by something. And so what God's grace has freed us from is the functional masters of our lives. In verse 12, that word, if you look in verse 12, you'll see the word passions there. In the Greek, the word is epimetheia. And what that word means is, it's, it means inordinate, epi-desires. Epic desire. Inordinate desire. So it doesn't mean I'm passionate about social justice or I'm passionate about art or I'm passionate about business. It means I have an inordinate craving insatiable need desire for this and if it's withheld from me i can't function i'm depressed i'm upset i can't get out of bed in the morning there's a cloud over me i feel like nothing is right with the world an epi passion so when paul says given over to he's saying the worship to god the grace of god the freedom of the cross jesus christ our faith in him the worship of god it frees us from the epi-desires, from the epic, the inordinate driving desires. This is pretty important 
because those inordinate desires lead us to inordinate places. How many of you kids have ever been in a pool and you play this game where it's like keep away with a ball? Like a volleyball or a beach ball, and you keep away. And sometimes you try and keep the ball from your friend, and so you put the ball underwater and you sit on it. Does anybody, you kids try that? And you're all like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You put the ball between your knees and you're like, whoa, whoa. You're trying to keep the ball underwater. And the ball doesn't want to stay there, does it? It's fighting, fighting, fighting for the surface. Right? See, when our hearts are not at rest in worshiping Christ alone, your heart is like that ball underwater. It's not satisfied. It's not calm. It's not at rest. It's, it's constantly fighting. And the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from the sin of that inordinate, epic desire, which ends up being slavery. So, that, so you've heard me use this language often, Redeemer, that the good thing becomes an ultimate thing. Now I can't live without it. Now I'm constantly pining after it. It's like if we all were all at a party and we were all sitting down with the, enjoying a glass of wine. If one of us was struggling with the epi desire for alcohol, if one of us had struggled with that alcoholism, we wouldn't know sitting there enjoying the wine together. Wouldn't, nobody, we wouldn't know. The only way to know would be to remove the wine. And then once it's removed... Now, all of a sudden, my epi-desire is now obvious now because I can't, I'm not, something's not, I can't handle it not being, not having it. Right? For me, I have that epi-inordinate desire for affirmation, acceptance from people. Right? We're not going to take time this morning to go into, you know, Paul's childhood, you know, sob story. But I have one, just like all of you. And so that's created some inordinate desire in me. And, it, and it, in, when I don't rest in the rest of the gospel, it drives me constantly. Right? So ironically, here I am standing in front of people to minister the gospel of grace and rest when the unevangelized part of my heart wants to use, instead of serve the church, use the church to garner right, that somebody tell me I'm okay, somebody tell me that was good, somebody tell me that I'm all right, somebody tell me that I'm loved. So we need the gospel to end this rest so that we're not driven in slaves to these happy desires. So that's what the gospel's freed us from. What has the gospel freed us for? Kids, look down at your notes. If, if the gospel has freed us from these spiritual masters, if the gospel has freed us from sin, the inordinate desire to worship something because everybody is a worshiper, everybody's worship switch has been flipped to on since the day they were born, it's not being flipped off, and we're going to worship something, what are we free for then? And what Paul gives us in Romans 6, as he begins to unpack it, is we've been freed for this life of peace, life of joy, right? even in suffering, even in death, even in tragedy. We've been freed to be fully human. And when Jesus Christ came and was 100% God and 100% man, he was fully human. And look at the freedom of Jesus, the life that Jesus lived, the freedom. Kids, look down at your notes. The blank there is, we're never held hostage to the trials we face. Right? That's that freedom. Whatever's going on in life, we're not hostage to that. When you look at the life of Christ, and we went through Matthew, you remember, last year. We took 40 weeks. We went through Matthew. You guys remember all those weeks, right? You've, you memorized it. I know you memorized all 40 of those sermons I preached. But we went through Christ's life and such freedom, Right? He's saying things to the religious crowd. Bang! Doesn't care what the crowd thinks. And he's feeding people. And, he's, and then he, 
and, and then, um, you know, he, he, he turns around to them and he says, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. Whoa, and he offends everybody. He offends them all. What's he saying? He's saying, like, you gotta, he's being metaphorical, obviously, but he's talking about, he's talking about that, that giving themselves over to the truth that he is God. And to, and to worshiping God and turn from their sin and to believe that he is the Christ and believe that he's the Messiah. And they all get offended and they leave and then he turns to his disciples, the closest guys to him. He's like, you guys going to go too? Yeah, such freedom. I mean, he's just free. And then he goes to the, the woman caught in adultery who's dragged in the street and all the religious people are polishing their own self-righteousness. And they're standing in the street and Jesus goes down to the sand and he starts writing with his finger and, you know, in the sand and he's just so free. He doesn't care what these guys think of him. And he says to the woman, he t- tells, first he says to them, you know, let he who's without sin throw the first stone. They're all convicted. They leave. We don't know what Jesus, we don't know what he wrote in the sand, but here's what we do know. The other times in scripture when God's finger wrote something, it was the law. So, I don't know this, but it's possible that maybe Jesus wrote, thou shall not commit adultery, and they all read that, and they all thought, I've done that, and I can't throw the first stone, so I'm going to leave. I don't know that. It's food for thought. Discuss that over lunch. But my point is he's so free to love. He's so free. And the freedom from, this, from, from our inordinate desire frees us to love, to see the people around you in this room. Frees us to love our city, to better our city. Frees us at work. To not be so consumed with our inordinate desire that we can't lovingly lead and care for and bring our Christian worldview to bear in the office. And I don't mean being preachers at the water cooler all the time. I mean loving the city. And I mean, yes, and preaching the gospel when those opportunities present themselves. But I'm talking about the freedom to do that. And Paul shows us this. And I'm, I'm, I'm garnering all this from verse 4. Verse 4 says newness of life. What does that newness of life look like on the ground? What, what is this newness of life? What is this freedom from, have, from going back into our sinful cells, right, and closing the doors behind us? What does that freedom actually look like? Well, if you think about it, if our problem is left to our own devices, there is inordinate desire. The constant craving of that ordinate desire leads us to inordinate disappointment. See, because if you have a desire for something, if you desire to have, uh, you know, a particular thing, and you don't get it, you know, you're going to move on with your life. You're going to be like, oh, I'm disappointed. That's too bad. That would have been beautiful, but oh well. And you're going to move on. But if you have an inordinate desire, what Paul's talking about here, and that thing doesn't happen, Getting into the school, getting the job, getting the promotion, getting the house, the car, the blah, blah, blah. Fill in the blank. It doesn't matter what it is. Getting the people to affirm you. Having a hundred people in a row stand in a big long line and go, that was a great sermon, that was a great sermon, that was a great sermon, that was a great sermon. So that your unevangelized, you know, you know disastrous, sinful heart is like, okay, good, I'm okay, because everybody's telling me I'm okay. You know, that's my problem. What's your problem? You have a problem. <laughs> Let's talk about your problems. Um, but, you know, what, what happens is when that inordinate desire doesn't get met, it, we're driven, we're driven, we're driven for it. So the newness of life is this great freedom to love others. Remember this? Remember in Mark chapter 10 when Jesus predicts his death and resurrection? 
What's the first thing the disciples do when he predicts his death and resurrection and his kingdom? They're like, hmm, hey, Jesus, um, when you come into your kingdom, how about uh, one of us sits on your left and uh, one of us sits on your right? They're after greatness. First thing they do, he predicts his death and resurrection and... This looks like an opportunity to move it on up, right? That's what they're thinking. And Jesus is like, where I'm going, you can't, you, know, you don't even want to go. Guys, you don't even understand. You're, like, you're thinking like the Gentiles, you've got to serve people. And of course, the irony of them wanting to be on his right and on his left is that when Jesus did come into his kingdom, there was somebody on his right and there was somebody on his left and they were on crosses. So what the disciples were up to was not what Jesus was up to. And so there's this great liberating freedom to this newness of life where it frees us to live these lives where we care for others. We care for the people here. We care for our city. It, God's grace frees us into a newness of life where it breaks down social barrier and ethnic barrier and economic barrier, where there's not an us and them conversation happening here in this room well, we come from this background, this tradition, this kind of family, this economic status, this ethnicity. Oh, you're from that one. It's all gone. The gospel invites us into this newness of life, this great freedom. Michael Horton, who's an author and the professor of uh, systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, says this. When we sin, we take the keys out of the hands of our liberator and we put them back in the hands of our sin, the prison warden. And Paul is encouraging us in Romans 6 to live in this great freedom so that we don't live in these chronically dissatisfied, me-first lives. He frees us from that. And when we sin, which Paul is getting at in Romans 6, we don't lose our status of salvation. And I want to be really clear about this. What we lose is the experience and the enjoyment of our freedom. You see... Every time we sin, we're not falling in and out of a state of being justified, now you're not. Justified, now you're not. Kids, if you're here, here, listen. Kids, Jesus saved you, it's game over. Saved you. You're in his grip, he saved you. Okay? But when you sin, you're, you're, it's like going back in the prison cell. It's like going back into this thing that's controlling you now that's going to bring this chronic dissatisfaction into your life. And so, the, which leads us to this third thing of, if we've been freed for that, if we've been freed from this inordinate desire and sin, and we've been freed for this newness of life and this freedom from these dark and unevangelized places of our heart, then how is God continually freeing us? How does he continually free us? Well, Christian maturity, Christian freedom... It's all downstream from marveling. Marveling at this gospel. Marveling at Jesus. I mean, why would you live to the glory of something that you don't understand or enjoy? And so we marvel at the grace of Christ week in and week out. Christ, through the text, regardless of where we are in the scripture, showcasing what he did and why he did it so that you can live in this great freedom of the gospel to the glory of the one who saved you in grace. I'll give you a picture. Uh, a number of years ago, I was in Guatemala, and we were doing a building project, and the team that we were working with, these Guatemalans, were mixing all of the concrete by hand. And it was backbreaking work in the blazing hot sun. 
And after that trip, we said, we are buying those guys a cement mixer. That was horrifying. So we came back and we raised some money and we bought them a cement mixer. And so we went down the following year and there was the cement mixer. And beside the cement mixer were the Guatemalans in this particular, and I'm not talking Guatemala City. I'm talking five hours out Guatemala City, up a mountain, in this tiny little place called, I think it was called Chiquimula or something like that. It was a very remote, tiny little place. And so there were these folks who had lived their whole lives, you know, up in this mountain, mixing the concrete on the ground, by hand, in the blazing sun, beside the cement mixer. Why? Because that pattern was familiar. That pattern was what they always knew. And this was like new. This demanded that I change some things. And so ironically, instead of enjoying the quote-unquote freedom of the cement mixer, they, re- they resorted back to the pattern of mixing it by, by hand in the, in the blazing hot sun. What, what God is doing in the gospel is he is freeing us uh, and continually freeing us by inviting us out of this back-breaking destructive pattern into a new liberating pattern. If you've come out of fundamental legalist kind of scenario, every time you use the word pattern, spiritual discipline, you often think, oh no, you know, that means as soon as dinner's over, over, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be family time seminary, and oh, that was horrifying, that was, that was, those were such terrible, such terrible memories, I'm not going to do that to my children, so I'm going to overcorrect and swing into the other theological ditch and teach my children nothing. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to have my children grow up in church and they're going to get 30 minutes of gospel a week and then the the rest of their week is going to be spent in this liturgical worship patterns of the culture and then when they're 20 I'm going to be shocked and surprised that they're not like totally blown away by the grace of Jesus. You see how both of these ditches are a problem. And so here the gospel invites us into this, this this new freedom. I'm going to reread for you verses 22 and 23. Paul writes, but now that you've been set free from sin and you've become slaves of God, the fruit that you get, it leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Wages require compensation. And here's the good news. Kids, look down at your notes. The wages of our sin was met by God's gift. It's Christ's work, not ours, that, ma- that paid sin's wages. And when we constantly revisit this grace that I'm talking to you about, the constant revisiting of Christ's grace and his love for us is the pathway to freedom from inordinate desire. Constantly revisiting God's grace reorients our heart from loving our sin to loving our Savior. The Christian faith, it appeals to our intellect, but spiritual freedom is not an academic exercise. Christian faith, it appeals to our hearts, but it is not a subjective exercise. The grace of God, the freedom of God, it appeals to our hearts, it transforms our hearts, and it appeals to our minds so that we desire these new patterns to live in the newness of life. If Christian faith was only about the heart, then we would constantly be led astray by the subjectivity of our own thoughts and our own desires and what we want and what we're up to. And we'd say, I had this thought today and I think it was God. Well, yeah, of course you think it's God because that's actually what you want. If it was only about the heart, we would constantly be led astray. But if it was only about the head, 
We would be like mechanics that knew where all the doctrinal bolts went and the theological engine, but we'd never driven through the countryside with the wind in our hair actually enjoying the freedom and experiencing the glory and the freedom of the love and the grace of God. So it is both the head and the heart and the pattern of God's word leading us continually into this freedom. I was asked a great question last week. Some, someone was here and they said to me, why do we confess our sin every Sunday? You say that Jesus forgave our sin, past, present, future. Why do we confess every Sunday? We confess our sin every Sunday not because Christ has not already forgiven our sin. We confess our sin every Sunday because it is in our confession that God changes our hearts and he cleanses our hearts and we increasingly enjoy our freedom. We hate our sin. We love our Savior. Why do we worship? Why do we read God's word? Why do we pray? Why do we do these spiritual disciplines? These are God's means of grace to constantly usher our hearts out of the, 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 the pattern of inordinate desire and into the pattern of enjoying and loving him and living in the freedom from that inordinate desire. And this is why we come to the Lord's table and we eat and we drink and God is graciously given us these patterns, these means of his grace to constantly free our hearts. We want to be transformed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God so that we can actually experience the reality of who God says that we are. And so the Father planned your freedom. The Son accomplished your freedom. And the Holy Spirit, right here, right now, in you, is applying that freedom as you worship, as Christ preached, as we eat and as we drink. He does his mysterious and awesome work of leading our hearts into this freedom. The cross of Christ means we're justified, we're no longer slaves to sin, and being united to Christ means we don't have to return to ourselves. Let's close in prayer.